Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to our Wednesday night study. And tonight, we're going to be doing what I consider one of the more important and helpful and useful topics of apologetics, which is looking at the reliability of the New Testament. So the very testament that gives us the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, the very testament that gives us the death and resurrection of Christ, the very testament that gives us the letters of Paul that tell us about the centrality of Christ in our life and how all need to believe in him and how God's love is available for all who will receive it. That very book happens to be the book that all of these tests that we give ancient manuscripts prove to be the most reliable book on the planet. So we're going to take a look at all that goes into that, the actual tests that are given to all ancient manuscripts to check their reliability. And we're going to apply those same tests to the New Testament and see how it holds up with other ancient manuscripts. So as we look at our first slide here, we see that there's two questions that we have to answer if we're going to be able to prove the New Testament is indeed a reliable count of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the first question we have to address is this. Do we have accurate copies of the original documents that were written down in the first century? So I don't know if you knew it or not, but we do not have the original manuscripts. We do not have the manuscripts where Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and the others actually put their pen to the papyrus and use that to actually write their original um, document. And all we have are copies. And that goes for virtually every ancient manuscript. We have no originals of virtually anything. So in some ways, that's good. One major way why that's, it's better to have the copies than the original is that if somebody changed the original manuscript, you wouldn't know if, that, if it was changed or not. And you wouldn't know uh, if it was legitimate or not. But if somebody changes one of the thousands of copies that we have, then you have all the other thousands of copies to verify, well, no, that one was changed. All these other ones kind of verify uh, what was originally written. So the first question we have to answer again is, do we have accurate copies of the original documents that were written down in the first century? And then the second question we got to answer is, do those documents speak the truth? It's one thing to copy them accurately um, during the centuries. It's a whole other thing to find out if what they were copying was copies of truth or copies of lies. So let's take a look at our first question by going to our next slide. What are the contributing factors that go into knowing if these were copied down accurately or not? Well, one contributing factor is this. Many people witnessed the events of the New Testament. So creating false accounts was nearly impossible since the accounts were written within the lifetimes of those mentioned in the writings. So you're going to see that unlike any other ancient manuscript that we have for reporting events from the past, what we do have from the New Testament is accounts that date all the way back to the lifetimes of the people that are written about. So that means they had a chance to rebuke or rebut the arguments made in the New Testament. It was written about them, the likes of Pilate and Herod and the Pharisees and people like that. Uh, they were still alive when the New Testament accounts were written down. So they had a chance to rebut it, and we have no rebuttals uh, from them on this. 
that makes a big, big difference in the reliability of an ancient manuscript. Because what you'll see is uh, virtually all the ancient manuscripts that we trust that are not the Bible, but we trust them like Plato and people like that, we have no copies that date to within the lifetime of Plato. In fact, some of these are up to a thousand years after their life. So the fact that the New Testament, we have copies written within the lifetime of the apostles is truly a remarkable advantage of trustworthiness of those documents. And it's not just one account that we're going on. It's not just one account that we found, like Matthew's gospel is the only account of Jesus' life that we have. We actually have 27 separate accounts written by nine different authors. So now you have 27 accounts of the life of Jesus written by nine different authors with zero contradictions to it. If you ever played the telephone game in a given room, you know it's virtually impossible to get a message from one person on one side of the room to the last person on the other side of the room whispering in their ears to each other. It's virtually impossible for that message to stay the same with about 20 people in one room alive at the same time, together in the same room together and all of that. So can you imagine having 27 different accounts by nine different authors um, written in different areas of the world, all in perfect harmony with one another? Virtually, humanly impossible to pull off without the guide of the Holy Spirit. But that's what our New Testament is. So in our next slide, we see three determining factors uh, that make up the reliability of ancient manuscripts. <coughs> So we're going to take a look at these three factors today. Number one, we want to know how many copies have been found. Obviously, the more copies of something that you find that match each other, the more reliable it is they copied accurately the original manuscript. The second thing uh, that's a determining factor we're going to look at is how early or how close to the events that they record are these manuscripts. Okay, obviously, we want them to be older manuscripts closer to the events that they're recording because obviously when they're written down we want it to be where those events weren't too far in the past when they were written down and three how abundantly supported are these copies so in other words what other texts what other literature tells about the same events that aren't in our bible but there are different other literature that support those stories as well Three determining factors. So now let's look at our first determining factor, the number of copies found. We have 5,700 copies of the New Testament manuscripts in Greek alone. Just in the Greek language, we have 5,700 copies. We have over 9,000 copies in other languages. We have about 10,000 copies in, in part or fragments of. So parts of a book of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament or fragments. Sometimes we find a section of a chapter with a few verses on it, and that has to match what larger copies uh, say about it. So in whole or in part, we have about 25,000 copies of the New Testament that we have uh, discovered through archaeology and, and other ways. Now, the next slide shows that the earliest undisputed fragment we have is of John 18. Uh, some verses in John 18, it's known as the John Ryland's Fragments. It dates to about A.D. 117 to 138, though some claim it to be earlier. The earliest disputed copies were found within the Dead Sea Scrolls dating from A.D. 50 to 70. 
Okay, so some dispute those dates. So that's why the John Rylands is undisputed. But some disputed dates, we have some that would date actually within the lifetimes of the apostles themselves, the 50s to the 70s uh, AD. These include fragments from Mark, Acts, Romans, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, and James. Now those who dispute these findings, because when I say there's some that are disputed, I want you to know that those that dispute the findings do so strictly for liberal reasons that they date all biblical books late because they don't believe in things like fulfilled prophecy. So in other words, <coughs> if Jesus said the temple will be destroyed, then they date the writing of that book after the destruction of the temple because they said, how could Jesus possibly know that? So therefore, if he predicted it, it must not be that he predicted it because nobody can do that. It must be that he knew it happened. And so he, they're simply re recording an event that happened and crediting it to Jesus earlier on. So it's very liberal thinking. It's, it's, it's uh, denying the supernatural. It's denying the possibility of miracles, which if you take miracles out of the Bible, then you take God out of the Bible. So that's obviously not a search for truth. It's using a presupposition to determine your outcomes. Now, although they dispute that the fragments are, are biblical, there's no non-New Testament literature that matches these frag fragments. So they've got to be um, biblical. Now we're going to take a look at the bibliographical test. The test that we actually give, um, it's called the bibliographical test. It's one test that we actually give. And what this test determines is, as far as reliability of these documents, it determines uh, the gap, the time gap in years from the events that are recorded to the time that the fragment was written about that event. Obviously, the closer to the event, the better. We can more accurately uh, talk about Valentine's Day 2022, if we write about it, then we can uh, Valentine's Day 1922. Okay, so we're closer to that event. Our memories are going to be better. So, as you can see on the slide, the New Testament, um, we have copies that date within 25 years of the events that are recorded. And you see in second place is Homer's Iliad. Now, there's 500-year time gap between the events recorded in the Iliad and Homer's the oldest copy that we have of Homer. So we have to trust in those 500 years that it was faithfully copied. Now what we see of the hundreds of copies of Homer that we have is that they, these copies match at a 90% accuracy rate. So because nine out of every 10 words on average are identical, that's deemed very careful copying of the text and therefore we can really know that Homer wrote that. And that makes us feel comfortable, even though there's a 500-year time gap of copying. Well, now think about the New Testament again. It's only a 25-year time gap that happens there. So it's much, much shorter. And the most significant thing about the shorter time gap in the New Testament is it makes the New Testament manuscripts the only manuscripts in the world of anybody's writing that we actually have that date within the lifetime of the people that are spoken of. So it's the only one that's actually inviting rebuttal, and yet we haven't gotten any rebuttal about those details. So you can see guys like Demosthenes has a 1,400-year time gap. So does Herodotus. Plato, that nobody ever questions, do we have accurate copies of Plato? And that's because we have about seven copies of Plato's work, the oldest dating to 1,200 years after the life of Plato. So seven copies that match at about 90% accuracy 
1,200 copy, uh, 1,200 year time gap does not bother us because seven copies match so accurately. So you can see how 25,000 manuscripts with only a 25 year time gap, not at 90% accuracy, but the Bible's actually at 99.5% accuracy. Copied far more accurately than any other ma ancient manuscript. We have far more of those ancient manuscripts and they date within the lifetime of the apostles. So in other words, the New Testament not only is the gold medal winner of ancient manuscript tests, there's not even a close second. It's an illegal all by itself as far as reliability goes. So now we're going to look at uh, other New the New Testament compared to other ancient documents as far as the number of copies that we have found. So as I said before, we have upwards of 25,000 copies of the New Testament. As I mentioned, Homer, we have about 643 copies of his. You see that's a lot less than 25,000. So the New Testament, again, is by far and away the gold medal winner of this uh, test, this bibliographical test. And we see Demosthenes has 200 copies, Herodotus 8. As I said earlier, Plato only has 7. And I keep bringing up Plato because he's very well known. He's taught in the universities constantly, and there's zero debate over whether we can trust what we're teaching of Plato because of these 7 copies with a 1,200-year time gap written at 90% accuracy. Compare that to 25,000 copies with a 25-year time gap with 99.5% accuracy. The Bible is in a league all by itself. The New Testament's in a league all by itself. Tacitus has a 20-year, um, has 20 documents. Caesar, 10. Pliny the Younger has seven. All right, now, next slide shows uh, that third uh, criteria we were talking about. How abundantly supported are the New Testament manuscripts. Okay, now, the New Testament is so well supported that if all of the many thousands of manuscripts were destroyed, so let's say for some dumb reason, they took all 25,000 copies that we have in museums all over the world, and they put them in one building, and then that building caught on fire, and they were all destroyed. We need not despair of that because we could still reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses simply by taking the quotes of the early church fathers. They quote the New Testament so often that we, we get so many verses from them, from Matthew all the way to Revelation, that we've only not found 11 verses uh, quoted from the, from the early church fathers. More specifically... We have 36,289 New Testament quotes from the early church fathers, making reconstruction of the New Testament virtually certain. This is disputed, but what is not disputed is what we can know from the anti-Nicene fathers from the early church fathers' writings. So what can we know from the anti-Nicene fathers? So the, the fathers all the way up from the time of Christ to the Nicene Council about the 4th century, what can we know from their writings alone. Here's what's undisputed in their writings. These are writings outside of the New Testament on uh, the first few hundred years of the church. We would know just from their writings that Jesus was predicted by the Old Testament as described in the New Testament. So in other words, the Old Testament prophets act, act, accurately prophesied about Jesus Christ. No other founder of a religion can have that said about them except for Jesus Christ. He was predicted by the Old Testament prophets accurately that Jesus is divine as described in the New Testament. 
He's not just human, he's also divine. That Jesus taught and trained his disciples as described in the New Testament. And that Jesus worked miracles as described in the New Testament. Uh, we can also know, as we see on our next slide, that Jesus was born of a virgin as described in the New Testament. That he lived, ministered, was crucified, and died as described in the New Testament. And that he rose from the dead as described in the New Testament. In other words, all of the essential knowledge that we need to be saved is preserved uh, very abundantly in the writings of the early church fathers. Um, so if we some reason lost our 25,000 manuscripts that prove the accuracy and reliability of the New Testament, we could simply turn to the early church fathers and reconstruct the New Testament and know everything we know, need to know to be saved accurately about Jesus Christ. All right, so some quotes here from the author of Cold Case Christianity, J. Warner Wallace. So speaking of these tests and how the New Testament passed them, he said, so if skeptics are looking for an early version of Jesus that is less miraculous, less divine, less supernatural, they're not going to find it in the writings that followed the first generation that followed the apostles. So if they're looking for uh, a lesser Jesus and they're trying to find it by the generation after the apostles, they're not going to find it from them. He's just as divine and miraculous and predicted in the Old Testament as the apostles present him to us. Okay, so the accuracy of the copies now. How accurate are these copies in the New Testament? I know I kind of gave it away earlier, but here's the details of it. Now, the three most accurately copied ancient manuscripts in all of the world are the Mahabharata of Hinduism, Homer's Iliad, and the New Testament. So there's your gold, silver, and bronze medal winners, but let's see how they compare to one another. The Mahabharata, which is the Indian flood narrative, is copied at 90% accuracy. Nine out of every 10 words are identical in all their copies. The Iliad's at approximately 95%. So they're 19 out of 20 words of the entire Iliad is exact in the 643 or so copies that we have of that. The New Testament's at 99.5%, 99.5%, meaning 199 out of every 200 words is exact, making it the most accurately copied ancient manuscript in the world. The one half of 1% in question does not affect the single doctrine of the Christian faith. Probably your Bible even tells you where each of those uh, words that are in question are. I know in my Bible, when one of those one half of 1% words come up, there's a little either letter or number there that refers you to the margin. And when you match that letter or number to the letter or number in the margin, it'll tell you that, hey, another group of manuscripts actually has this word here instead of that word. But it's usually things like the Bible you're reading might say Jesus said something and another manuscript didn't have his name Jesus said he, he said that thing. It has the pronoun he instead of Jesus, but nobody debates that the he is referring to Jesus. So you might say, well, why are they call it a mistake when it, we know exactly what it's meaning? Because the original author either wrote Jesus or he wrote he. He didn't write both. So somebody made a mistake in copying there, and that counts as one of the mistakes. But it's certainly a harmless mistake that does not affect our understanding whatsoever. All right, next slide says, a quote from Frederick Kenyon. Frederick Kenyon is an expert in the very thing that we're talking about now. 
he is an expert in ancient manuscripts. He's not a theologian. He's not a Bible thumper or anything like this. This is just a guy who's made his living studying ancient manuscripts. Here's what he said. Ancient manuscript expert Frederick Kenyon summed up the status of the New Testament, stating, <clears throat> it cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance, the text of the Bible is certain. How valuable is that for us to know? Especially, is this the case with the New Testament? So as the Bible as a whole, we're not talking about the Old Testament tonight, but Frederick Kenyon says, the text of the entire Bible is certain, especially as the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, over 25,000, of early translations from it within 25 years, and the quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it's practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. Now listen to this quote. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. So no matter how impressed or not you are with what was just said, just understand this. If you're not impressed with that, you'll want to be impressed with the reliability of any ancient manuscript, period. Okay? So literally, if you're not going to believe the criteria or, or the text of the New Testament, you must also reject all text of all ancient manuscripts or else you're running into hypocrisy because the Bible clearly by the experts' testings is the most reliable text on our planet. So the conclusion of the accuracy part of tonight is this. So we know we have the same New Testament that was written down nearly 2,000 years ago. But the next question is even more important. Do we have accurate copies of the truth or do we have accurate copies of a lie? In other words, is the New Testament historically reliable? So let's take a look at that now. Now we're going to look at six historical tests that are used not just for the Bible, but for every ancient manuscript, historical document. Here are six criteria used to determine the trustworthiness of historical documents. These same criteria are used for all historical documents. <coughs> so, these six tests will be this. One, do we have early testimony? Okay, so we already talked about that within 25 years. And we're going to get into more detail on that now. Two, do we have eyewitness testimony? It's what every judge in our land looks for with every case that comes in front of him or her. Where are the eyewitnesses? Who saw what happened? So we're asking the same question. Do we have eyewitnesses for this? Three, do we have testimony from multiple eyewitness sources, not just one? Four, are those eyewitnesses trustworthy? Five, do we have enemy attestation? In other words, do the enemies of Jesus agree with what the New Testament is saying? And six, does the testimony contain events or details that are embarrassing to the authors? In other words, nobody expects an author making up a fictitious story where they're trying to elevate a new teaching and a new way of understanding. Like, we don't need a sacrificial system anymore. You're saved by grace through faith alone now. It's not of works anymore, all that. If they're trying to convince you of all that, would they dare write things that embarrass themselves and may put into question their own credibility? Well, if they do, that's a sign of authenticity. Because why would they do that when it doesn't help their cause, unless they're simply telling the truth? All right, so let's get into these six historical tests. The first one we're going to look at 
is do we have early testimony? So let's go to the experts once again. Here's Milo Burroughs. He's professor of biblical theology at Yale Divinity School. He said, well, first of all, now, discoveries of early transmissions found in the 20th century have shortened the time gap between the lives of the biblical writers and the earliest fragments that we have. So we have 20th century discoveries that have shortened the time gap, especially in the Old Testament, uh, through the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the 1940s. This led Miller Burroughs, professor of biblical theology at Yale Divinity School, to say this. Another result of comparing New Testament Greek with the language of the papyri discoveries is an increase of confidence in the accurate transmission of the text of the New Testament itself. So now the Dead Sea Scrolls deal with the Old Testament, but these papyri discoveries that they made in the 20th century, where they're comparing New Testament Greek with the Greek that's on these papyri, the, it, it gives us increased confidence that the New Testament was accurately transmitted down to us as they match the, Greeks, the Greek of both of those. Now, William F. Albright, now this is a biblical archaeologist. William F. Albright says this, we can say emphatically that there's no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about A.D. 80, two full generations before the date between 130 and 150 given by the more radical New Testament critics of today. So William Albright's addressing those liberal critics that I talked about earlier that say these New Testament books were written between 130 and 150, which means they weren't written by the apostles or Paul because they were already dead. So they, they're crediting, crediting false authorship to people. These people that would write these stories down, and just to give it credibility, they'll say, well, this is from Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. It's called pseudepigrapha. There were false uh, writings, giving false uh, credit to people uh, for writing them just to try to make them more believable. Now, William F. Albright says that because of those papyri discoveries, he says we can say emphatically that you can't date any New Testament book after A.D. 80. Okay, now, <coughs> he also said, in my opinion, every book of the New Testament was written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and the 80s of the first century A.D., very probably sometime between A.D. 50 and 75. Now, I'm going to up that a little bit because I don't believe any book of the New Testament could have been written after A.D. 70. Because what happened in A.D. 70? In A.D. 70, the temple is destroyed exactly as Jesus predicted around A.D. 30. So Jesus predicted 40 years prior to that event that that event would happen. And it proves Jesus in a strong way to be a true prophet. And so the New Testament writers that are trying to hold them up as a true prophet have the destruction of the temple in their back pocket as proof that he is indeed sent from God. Yet none of them include it in their writings. Not one of those New Testament authors mentions the destruction of the temple, which tells me the only reason I can justify in my heart they do not mention that destruction of the temple is because it hadn't happened yet when they were writing their books. Because they would have loved to scream from the rooftops that Jesus told us it would be destroyed, and it was. So therefore, I believe every book of the New Testament, including Revelation with the very late date that most people give it, must have been written uh, before A.D. 70. Now, Philip Schaff, historian. Okay, so we had an archaeological expert, manuscript expert, 
uh, biblical uh, scholar. Now we have an historian speaking in on it, Philip Schaff. He said that the testimony of the disciples, if they're not true, must be downright blasphemy or madness. The former hypothesis, which is blasphemy, the former hypothesis cannot stand a moment before the moral purity and dignity of Jesus, revealed in his every word and work, and acknowledged by universal consent. As far as him being mad, he says self-deception in a matter so momentous and with an intellect in all respects so clear and so sound is equally out of the question. He continues by saying on the next slide, how could he be an enthusiast or a madman who never lost the even balance of his mind, who sailed serenely over all troubles and persecutions as the sun does above the clouds, who always returned the wisest answer to tempting questions, who calmly and deliberately predicted his death on a cross, his resurrection on the third day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the founding of his church, the destruction of Jerusalem, predictions which have literally been fulfilled. A character so original, so complex, so uniformly consistent, so perfect, so human, and yet so high above all human greatness can be neither a fraud nor a fiction. The poet, as, as has been well said, would in this case be greater than the hero. It would take more than a Jesus to invent a Jesus. Now that is such a penetrating quote to my heart. I hope it is to yours. It's saying the character of Jesus Christ, so pure, so perfect, so consistent, so human, yet so high above all human greatness, can neither be fraud nor fiction, because that would make the poet greater than the hero that he wrote about. Okay, It would take more than a Jesus to invent the character of Jesus. And if you think about all the millions of lives that have been changed by Jesus and all of the societies that have been changed by following the teachings of Jesus, how could that come from a madman or some religious enthusiast? It had to come from the Son of God. It's the only thing that makes sense. All right, our second uh, test is called the internal evidence test. So does within the New Testament itself, is it claiming to be a document from God? Is it claiming that it's perfect? Is it claiming that it's without error and all of these things? And we're going to see that the answer, of course, is yes. Now, we start off by saying, let's look at Luke chapter 1, the first four verses. Because there our author Luke is going to say, first of all, that many people are telling the story of Jesus and writing about the story of Jesus. It's not just our gospel writers. Many people were doing it in the first century. So Luke says this, And as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitness and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, it seemed good to me also, uh, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Okay? So now here's Luke saying, many people have written this account. 
not many have done it from in order from beginning to end, from birth to death. And you'll notice the greatest birth account of Jesus Christ we have comes from this author, Luke. Okay, why? Well, biblical scholars believe he actually sat down with none other than Mary, the mother of Jesus, and said, tell me about the birth of your son. So we get the angelic narrative. We get the visit to um, Elizabeth when she's pregnant with John the Baptist. And so we get this very homemade feeling of the birth narrative of Christ through there. And then we see in other texts um, that the Bible itself is claiming to be supernatural. We'll have Peter say that no, um, no prophecy of God came about just by creative stories. We're not telling creative stories when we're writing about the story of Christ, but we were led by the Holy Spirit, he'll say in 2 Peter. 1 John 1, the first four verses are amazing to me because John will say this, that which was from the beginning, so he's reminding us of creation, that which we have seen with our eyes. So imagine saying that thing from the beginning, we've seen them with our eyes thousands of years later. That which was from the beginning, that which we have seen with our eyes and our ears have heard and our hands have handled, that is what we're proclaiming to you about the word of life, that that life was manifested, that godly life in the heavens that created the heavens and the earth, that life was made available to our senses so we could see him and hear him and touch him. And he says, now we proclaim that to you so that you may be complete and you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship was God was with God and his son, Jesus Christ, that your joy may be full. He's saying, if you understand this stuff properly, you will have fullness of joy that A, God is there, B, God loves you, C, God loved you enough to look you in the eye and let you know that he's here, D, that he would actually die for you, and that E, he rose from the dead just to show you that your death will not be the end. You will actually rise from the dead if you have faith and trust in him. If you don't, then you won't. If you do, then you will. Internal evidence test. All right, the second historical test we're going to look at now is do we have eyewitness testimony? So is this testimony we're getting, are these people that were there and saw it, or is this hearsay? All right, well, Dr. Norman Geisler, systematic theologian and philosopher, says this, both the vast number of the independent eyewitness accounts of Jesus, as well as the nature and integrity of the witnesses themselves, Leave beyond a reasonable doubt the reliability of the apostolic testimony about Christ. Now, a couple things about that. Number one, we talked about the va first of all, the vast number of independent eyewitness accounts of Jesus. We already heard Luke say, I'm writing this down for you, but many people have done that already. And of those we know, um, Matthew, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, um, James, and others in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews... Now, it says, as well as the nature and integrity of these men. The nature and integrity of these men. What's the nature and integrity of these men? You have to ask yourself, what would be worth you receiving public beatings for? What would be worth you going to jail for? And what would be worth you dying for? Because all of these authors went through all three of these things. They went through all three of these things. And all they had to do to have a good life was shut up about it. Stop talking about it and you'll be fine and happy and you can have your wife and your kids and your career. You can enjoy holidays and vacations with them. 
everybody will leave you at peace. But none of them took that road. They all took the punishments and everything. So, so every way the government had to shut them up, they would not take those ways. And it eventually got them all killed, except the Apostle John, who died of old age, despite them trying to kill him by dipping him in hot oil. And it didn't work. So they put him on Patmos, a prison island instead. So what more could you possibly ask somebody to do to prove their integrity about the story they're telling? I can promise you there's nothing more you could ask them. Now, in Acts 2.22, the apostle Peter is speaking to a crowd. And as he talks about Jesus and his power and his miracles, he says, as you yourselves know. He's saying, I'm not telling you something that you didn't see for yourselves. You're not aware of yourselves. He says, Jesus was a worker of miracles, as you yourselves know. You cannot say that to a crowd that has never seen a miracle. Or if Jesus was not a miracle worker, you can't certainly call him a miracle worker and say, and you know it too. Okay, so clearly uh, Jesus' miracles were public displays in the streets for everybody to see in broad daylight. And in Acts 26, 24 to 26, Paul is in front of one of the governors of the land. And he actually talks again about the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, and the miracles of Christ. And he says, these things were not done in a corner. He says, you're aware of these things, so they weren't done in a corner. These things were not done behind the publics on Wiles Road. These things were done in the streets of Jerusalem for public people to see. If you went to the market that day, you saw a miracle of Jesus. Okay, these things were not private. They were very, very public and stated that way. All right. So Will Durant. Will Durant is a trained historical investigator. So it's his job to investigate things of the past. So what does this expert say about it? He says, despite the prejudices and theological misconceptions of the evangelist. In other words, often the apostles didn't know what was going on. Thomas said, I won't believe he rose from the dead until I touch his wounds. So this was all new to them, and they were trying to figure it all out as they went. So it says, despite the prejudices and theological misconceptions of the evangelists, they record many incidents that mere inventors of these stories would have concealed. The competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom, their flight after Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, the reference of some auditors to Jesus' possible insanity, his confession of ignorance as to when he's coming back, the future event of his second return, his moments of bitterness, his despairing cry on the cross. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. In other words, if you're inventing the story, you don't include those details. You don't make up details that seem to weaken the people you're trying to strengthen, including yourself and your friends, and certainly not Jesus. If you're making up the story of Jesus, you don't say things like, he was crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane for some other way to do this. Okay? So details like that. You don't write about yourselves that Jesus is constantly rebuking you because you don't, you try to stop him from going to the cross. So uh, those are signs of authenticity. So the Will Dur Durant continues this quote on the next slide, and he says this, that a few simple men should have in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. 
After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and teaching of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. So here we are, Western mankind, the most fascinating feature of all of Western humanity, he says, is that despite higher criticism, higher criticism is a term we give for liberal scholars who do not believe in miracles, do not believe in the supernatural, do not believe that Jesus is God. So therefore, they interpret the biblical text um, and take the miracles out of the biblical text or explain them some other way. Uh, they said, despite that higher criticism like that, the outlines of the life, character, teachings of Christ are, remain reasonably clear. In other words, you've got to be unreasonable to not understand it. And they constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. Why in all of history of Western man? Because Western society has been built upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. Not that we stand here today being faithfully, having faithfully supported those teachings over the centuries of Western history, but certainly founded upon that. All right, and for the sake of time, we're going to cut here because the third point is kind of lengthy, and we'll pick up on our third test, which will be not just eyewitness accounts, but do we have group eyewitness account, multiple eyewitness account, and we will pick that up again beginning next uh, Wednesday night. <laughs>